0: Starting in verse 7. And did the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like the previous weeks, these other churches we've looked at, we know a little bit about the city of Philadelphia that helps us put some context to the words that Jesus has for the community of believers that are worshiping there. I've been really surprised over the last few weeks. Uh, People have told me just how much they've enjoyed these little historical backgrounds we've done on all the cities, which surprised me a little bit. Um, Ashley and I just finished paying off my student loans from my seminary days this last month, and I thought I'm finally starting to get some of my investment back on that. All of this random facts about ancient cities. People are finding this interesting. That's never happened before. So since you find that so interesting, I was thinking about our next sermon series being something like, the textual source criticism behind the documentary hypothesis of the the Pentateuch, if that sounds like a good option for you. So um, you'll find it riveting. Believe it or not, that's actually a real sentence I said, by the way, too. So I haven't exhausted all of that seminary education. Anyways, uh, Philadelphia is, of course, as you probably know from our own Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And history tells us that it's an ancient city, That a king had founded in honor of his brother, so literally a gift to his brother to kind of show the affections, the admiration he had for him. He gives us this idea of brotherly love, the city that Philadelphia, our own, takes its name from. Uh, This region that the ancient city was in, here in Asia Minor, was known for its vineyards, and apparently raisins, which a significant number of our raisins still come from the same place today in modern Turkey. But there isn't a lot about this ancient city that stands out in some of the ways that the other cities, Pergamum and Ephesus that we've looked at, did. I've been reading through this great little book on these, these seven cities over the last few weeks, give some of this historical background on it, and it refers to Philadelphia as a missionary city, partly because we know that the church here was active in missionary work, we'll touch on that later, but also because Philadelphia was founded as a kind of Greek missionary city. Uh, This part of the, the, the region of Asia Minor wasn't particularly good at picking up the Greek culture that the big, prosperous new cities had. The rural parts that Philadelphia is located in had lagged behind in picking up Greek culture and Greek worship and Greek language. And so they placed the city of Philadelphia here in that kind of remote region, specifically to kind of evangelize, to be a missionary emphasis for Greek culture. Hopefully it could spread some Greek influence to a region that hadn't quite picked up like the other places. In other words... Philadelphia was designed to be the kind of ideal Greek city that would spread Greek values and be a kind of missionary life for Greek culture. Uh, It apparently did that pretty well. A few decades after it had been settled down in this region, Greek language pretty much took over and the Greek culture began to spread. It had apparently been pretty effective in ancient times. But the city went through a tough period around 17 AD. You might have remembered last week we talked about in Sardis, the great earthquake that hit in 17 AD and the whole city being rebuilt by Rome. The same earthquake had pretty massive devastation here in Philadelphia. But one of the things that made it different was unlike Sardis, Philadelphia struggled for even years afterwards to have aftershocks, rumblings, people continued to feel little earthquakes, minor earthquakes within the city. Uh, Those aftershocks actually proved to be in ways more destructive than the actual earthquake because it undermined the idea of safety. Imagine if so much of your homes and your possessions had been lost in a great earthquake, and then for months later, you kept feeling tremors. Uh, People pretty quickly decided this might not be the place they wanted to settle down long-term, and they waited. They prolonged rebuilding so many of the important buildings throughout the city. Um, People were just kind of terrified, terrified that that hour was going to come again, another great earthquake. So a lot of people took to living outside of Philadelphia. They took their possessions, left their abandoned houses, set up tents out in the vineyards, out in the countryside. And the city ended up having a lot of people living around it in these kind of nomadic towns than actually in the city itself. Um, The city ended up developing a kind of reputation for being dangerous. You can kind of get the picture. These half-demolished houses and buildings, important that nobody had ever finished rebuilding or reconstructing, set there vacant. All of the people living outside of the city, this reputation for Philadelphia being a place of kind of instability, uh, the constant threat of disaster at any moment, left people and all of their buildings abandoned and questioning what the future of this city, once an important Greek city, would have looked like. Um, It's probably this flight to the country of people leaving this city and the kind of insecurity about it is probably what Jesus is referring to, this image he uses when he says that this church, if they're faithful, will be made like a pillar in the new city of Jerusalem that comes down. And then he tells them, and never shall you go out from it. Well, he's obviously talking about this eternal city of Jerusalem, but he's probably picking up on this idea that a lot of people found themselves in fear living in this city of Philadelphia. The promise that Jesus offers this church is a promise of stability, a kind of strength. Um, You can imagine how important that image would have been to a group of people who were trying to cope even decades after with the abandonment and the devastation of those earthquakes. How important it must have been for Jesus to talk to this community about even though they lived on literally the shaky ground, nothing felt secure about being a citizen there or a church there, yet still Jesus says his promise is to strengthen them like a pillar within God's new city that's coming down. Uh, It's interesting, a few years after these earthquakes, in an attempt, you can imagine city planners trying to figure out, how are we gonna piece this thing back together with everybody abandoning the city? They decided to reinvent the city and give it a new name, which sounds like something a marketer would do to try to turn things around. They decided to make it a more Roman city, and so they gave it the new name Neo Caesarea, which literally means the young or the new town of Caesar and they tried to reinvent the town as an imperial center of worship, something we've talked a lot about in these other cities. They started constructing a small temple to the emperor at the time, but archeologists can't quite figure out if it was either never fully completed or sometime after abandoned. Um, It seemed like their project to kind of rejuvenate and reinvent the town just kind of fizzled out. It never quite took. It ended up being the kind of city that many people would have passed through, but it wasn't the kind of place that people aspired to live in or aspired to go to. It would have been a tough town to grow a church. It would have been a tough town to get people to commit to. Everybody was probably looking for opportunities to go elsewhere. Who wants to commit to this place? It's definitely not a place of influence. Definitely not a place you would imagine having a bright future, opportunities, or the circumstances for success. But there was a church there. And it was one of these seven that Jesus decides to speak to through John's letter in Revelation. Revelation. The first thing Jesus offers him, if you remember this little pattern we've been looking at in Revelation, is Jesus offers an image of himself. Jesus describes himself to this church and this city as the one with the keys of David who opens and shuts doors that others cannot. It's actually a reference to Isaiah 22, a pretty obscure little story in Isaiah. Isaiah predicted in one of his prophecies that God was going to come down and replace this man, a gatekeeper, to the king's palace. Um, It's a really important position in the ancient world. You imagine sort of people coming in and wanting an audience with the king, wanting to speak to the king. There was this kind of chief of staff position who was said to hold the key to the palace. And his job was to allow entrance into the throne, access to the king. Um, you might remember a few weeks ago when uh, President Trump changed out his chief of staff. One of the big things that everybody was talking about was how would this new chief of staff control access to the Oval Office? That was one of the things they talked about, right? Could you just wander in and give your advice or hopefully this guy would have some parameters for who got access to the president? That's a pretty good picture of what this position was in the ancient world. The person that held the key was the person in charge of giving access to the royal throne, access to the king. So in Isaiah 22, we get this little prophecy that the man who was currently holding that position was abusing that power for his own gain. And that God was about to come down and change out this gatekeeper, this key holder. So Isaiah gives this prediction. And I, speaking for God in this prophecy, I will place on his shoulder this new gatekeeper, this new key holder... The shoulder of his shoulder, the key of the house of David, he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Here are sort of these exact words that Jesus picks up for this image of himself in Revelation three. Um, this was the guy who showed up, unlocked and gave people access to the king. And Jesus picks up that image to describe himself to this church in Philadelphia. So Jesus seems to be doing something like this. He's reminding them, this church, that he's the one who stands at the doorway. He's the one who gives access to God. The one who allows people into his presence, the one who shuts the door, those who come in and have audience before God come because Christ has opened the door. And Christ stands with the authority, the key to do it. Jesus then goes on in verse 8 to tell them that with that power, for them, this church in Philadelphia, he set before them an open door. Do you see where he says it? Verse 8. That open door is undoubtedly this idea, access to God. Here's this church, sort of in obscurity, weakness, not a lot of influence. And Jesus is saying they have before them an open door by his authority. But most commentators describe it also as a kind of opportunity, an important word I want to look at today. Um, It's the same way we might talk about in our own lives. We have these sort of analogies, a door shut, right? Uh, I, I thought an opportunity was coming, but that door shut we might give the expression to. It's the same sort of thing that's happening here. There's an open door of opportunity before them, and we instantly understand that there's some kind of opportunity in it. Jesus had given them an opportunity that's visualized by this open door. Uh, Most historians actually think we know a little bit about what that language would have meant. It's an expression that actually comes up quite a bit in the early church and a lot in the New Testament. Uh, This idea of an open door being before people. Uh, The open door was a way of describing a church's opportunity to share and to live out the gospel message. Uh, It's actually one of, I wasn't really aware of it this week, but sure enough, it's one of Paul's most frequently used phrases when he talks about ministry and the opportunities he has. So in places like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Colossians, Paul picks up this image over and over to talk about ministry opportunities. So to give you an example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The same sort of image he picks up. Um, What Jesus seems to be saying to this church is, in Philadelphia, this city may look lost, a lot may seem abandoned, there may not seem to be a lot going on, but even though they aren't fully aware of it, he, Jesus, has placed before them a kind of opportunity That though it doesn't seem to be a place of influence, though it doesn't seem to be a place of opportunity, Jesus is reminding them what you see is not the ultimate determining factor. There is, in fact, by Jesus' own control, an opportunity in this place, this abandoned city of Philadelphia. So, here's what I want to do this morning. Um, remember, the way we're talking about these seven churches is all of these churches are facing some kind of pressure, whether it's outright persecution, whether it's martyrdom, whether it's sort of being sidelined from culture or pressure to conform to it. And one of the things we said is each week we want to look at the ways that these seven churches respond to those kinds of pressures that they're facing. In this one, we discovered that there's actually a risk of misunderstanding the context we find ourselves in, looking at this pressure, looking at the difficulties and not fully recognizing the opportunity that God is putting before us. So, the question I want to ask is, how do we recognize these opportunities that Christ is offering, and what do we do with them when we find ourselves with these opportunities? Um, The kinds of opportunities we're talking about In this case, primarily about a church, primarily about the ministry opportunities of this church. But I think what Jesus says here has a lot to do with our own lives, our own individual opportunities, just as it does us as a group. Uh, If you look up that word opportunity in a dictionary, which is a word we all know, so I don't know why you would look it up in a dictionary. But if you did, um, the secret message is unlocked in the definition from Webster's Dictionary. Uh, No, it's pretty basic, what you would expect. A set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something. This idea of possibility has a lot to do with the circumstances, the context we find ourselves in, and the possibility of things happening from those given circumstances, that context. Um, I think the best way to think of it is that Christ is making these opportunities, these possibilities available to us. Something happening by his work in this set of contexts, these circumstances we find ourselves in. So that could be all sorts of things. It could be things in your own life individually. It could be contexts and situations you're struggling with. It could be opportunities we find in the reality of moving to a new location, this group of people that we find ourselves in, any set of circumstances that creates the possibility of things changing. So the first one is this. How do we recognize it? How do we sense what God is doing and when he's giving us these open doors, these possibilities that he gives to this church? Um, It's interesting that this is one of only two churches in the list of seven that Jesus has nothing negative to say about. You might remember in some of the other churches, he had some pretty strong negative words to say. But as you read through this letter to the church at Philadelphia, there's not one single message of problem, not one correction. Everything he speaks to them seems to be positive, encouraging, and hope-filled. There's no condemnation of anything going on. But he does recognize that this is a hard place for them to be living out their faith. In fact, this is not the kind of place you would say... Wow, what an opportunity this church has before them. So the first thing we see is that Christ's opportunities don't often appear to us as opportunities. The places we go looking and imagining what an opportunity, or this doesn't seem like much of an opportunity, has very little to do with the doors that Christ is opening and the doors that Christ is shutting. Um, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances who are in ministry just from school, and a lot of them are planting churches. And inevitably, if you sit down with a group of church planners, you hear them start to talk about why their city is the best place To plant a church, right? It's just part of what they do, part of the way they raise funds, part of the way they get people excited about it. But it's always just about the exact same list of things that are motivating why this is the best opportunity for church planting. The town is inevitably full of young working professionals. That seems to be always top of the list. There's affluence there, right? Influence, culture, and trend setting flows out of this place. Um, I think of it as like the trickle-down effect of Christian influence. If we reach the really cool people, then it'll trickle down to us common people in the Ozarks, right? So we look for these opportunities opportunities, these influential places to plant churches. I know, I probably crossed the line. It's good to reach those places too. So, um, But Philadelphia is the last place that a church planter would say, now that's an influential place to plant a church. That's where I want to go to be able to do something great. People are desperately trying to get out of that town. Everybody who's there is just kind of stuck, wishing they were somewhere else. It's a time in Philadelphia's history when people are hunkered down just trying to survive and get by. But the doors that Jesus Christ opens, are not always the places or the people or the events that we would choose to open or that we would imagine are the best opportunities. Part of what's made this church worthy in Philadelphia of the opportunity before them is the fact that their work has been primarily about faithfulness, just settling in and holding on to what they have in this set of circumstances in this place, being faithful to it. And because of that, Jesus says, because of that simple faithfulness to this place, a door is opened in front of them, an opportunity. Um, I really want you to hear this. God doesn't need people with clever strategies to pick locks and kick open doors to go and do work that we thought couldn't be done in these influential places. The whole point of this image is the fact that Jesus is the one who opens and shuts these doors. In places where nobody expected them to be open, in places where nobody thought it was important to open them, Jesus is coming down to groups of people simply being faithful and opening doors, presenting opportunities that nobody else would have expected or found themselves interested in. What he's looking for are people who are simply willing to say, I'm in. Who's working with faithfulness for his name, his kingdom, and all sorts of forgotten and obscure places, Jesus coming down and saying, I see it, and I'm setting before you an open door. That's not the way we normally think about finding opportunities, not as a church, but probably also not in your own individual lives as you think about the future, opportunities, things ahead of you. Um, Jesus is saying we don't need some kind of special vision. We don't need some printed out strategy to help us unlock all the opportunities and take the best advantage of them. You don't need some catchy slogan or marketing manual to be able to leverage all of the opportunity and squeeze all of the benefit out of it. Jesus simply says he's opening doors, doors of opportunity. Opportunity to share your testimony, to show yourself faithful to his name, to participate in what it is that he's doing in all sorts of of out-of-the-way and forgotten places. Opportunities to see his kingdom coming and changing your life and changing your families and changing the circumstances, this context of the world you find yourself in. And the only thing he asks is for a simple kind of faithfulness, that responds when those doors are before you by saying, I'll commit. Patient endurance is the way that he puts it to this church. Um, I know I've quoted it to you a lot before, but I want to read a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote that's one of my favorite. Uh, he has this little book, Life Together, which has been a really important book in my life. And he talks in it about how Christians live amongst one another, how they worship together, how they, they pursue God together. And uh, he he takes up this similar topic of how do we as a group of believers or individually as leaders in those situations. How do we recognize our own strategies for manipulating and ruining these opportunities that we're given? So here's what Bonhoeffer says. He writes, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our Christian fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with him, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness, and his promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. That's a long quote, but it's hard in just one sermon to show you how important, how significant that quote has been in my life. The risk Bonhoeffer portrays is that we would dream up our own vision of an opportunity. And he warns that what we tend to do is we go around looking at every set of circumstances, every context we find ourselves in, and we try to find in it at our own control, the ability to make our dream fit that opportunity you know how you do this. You've done it probably all the time. We do it in our own lives. We do it in our relationships. We do it in churches. Um, we say to ourselves, you know, if this church just had a little bit better chairs, or, you know, if this church had a few more young people, or if that pastor could cut that sermon down just 10 minutes, um, which I'm probably not going to in the sermon, uh, 90% of those things that we come up with, the way that we try to use these opportunities, are not necessarily sinful. Um, some of them might actually be good ideas. But what Bonhoeffer is warning is that our ideas, this energy to see them through in our opportunities, it has this tendency to pull our attention off of what Christ is doing. Bonhoeffer says our visionary dreaming makes us proud, and it sets off making all of these circumstances into smaller versions that we imagine our own dreams. We start demanding that God fulfill them. We start demanding and using other people to make sure that it happens. And when we fail, we start blaming others, blaming God, and eventually we start feeling like a failure ourselves. So Bonhoeffer gives some advice uh, to constantly be receiving all of these opportunities that we have, these circumstances, with gratitude. That's how you rightfully respond to an opportunity. You just keep being grateful for whatever circumstances you find yourself in, trusting that God is doing something in it. Now, that isn't a passive thing, you know, like, yeah, 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 whatever happens, happens, I just trust it'll work out. What Bonhoeffer's trying to push us towards is an attention that's constantly focused on what God is actually doing, even in this set of circumstances, this stuff of my life. I think that's exactly the wisdom that Jesus is offering this church in Philadelphia. I mean, look again at verse 10. Um, Back up just a few words. Jesus says to the church, they, these Jewish synagogues, will learn that I have loved you, great words, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. What is it that Jesus loves about this church? He loves that they've kept following him with a kind of patient endurance. It's so close to what Jesus has been saying to these churches over and over in Revelation, just urging them to hold on to what they have, patient endurance. Um, There's something so interesting that hit me this week about what Jesus is doing here. Think about what he's saying to this church. I have this amazing opportunity before you, this open door of opportunity, this great thing that's about to happen. And then he says, so keep holding on to patient endurance. This is the second way we recognize these Christ opportunities, by simply gratefully receiving any circumstances and holding on to it with patient faith. You know what you don't find in this passage that's really interesting? You don't find Jesus offering them a list of steps or actions or ways that they can go to work seizing the opportunity. Here's how we would like to think about these opportunities as a church. Uh, We would like to think that God lays down a blueprint, follow this pattern, and you can be guaranteed success. You know what the Philadelphians need to do. Start a new building campaign in faith, or put their best foot forward next Sunday because next Sunday is going to be a great service, an important service, or get ready because they're bringing new people, be a little more relevant, be a little bit more cool. He simply says to them, I know you don't feel significant, But I'm putting an opportunity before you. I'm about to use you for something great. So just stay faithful. Keep at it. Do what you've done before up until now so well. Which, remember, for most of them, they're probably coming to the conclusion, hadn't really been paying off in any great way. Still, Jesus says, keep at it. Remember, this isn't a passive thing. Be active about holding on. Just keep worshiping together, keep praying for one another, keep believing, keep straining to see what I'm doing, keep being grateful at all times for all of these circumstances you find yourself in. When Jesus brings along an opportunity for you individually or even for us as a church, it never depends on our strategy or our ability to achieve it, to make it happen. Jesus doesn't give them any secret to achieving the possibility, the opportunity he offers them. Jesus is always the one who's opening the door and closing the door. Now, this call may ask for more from us than we've been giving. The implications of it may play itself out in all sorts of new ways. But the promise itself, this opportunity, never depends on any particular thing that we do beyond believing and hoping and holding on. So then the third thing. Don't let external circumstances draw the conclusions in your life about what Christ is doing there. There's another thing probably worth pointing out. You may have noticed that I skipped over it. I skipped over this whole synagogue of Satan thing. Now, that's a pretty intense phrase to just blow past. Um, Apparently, like we've seen in other churches in Revelation, in Philadelphia, they're beginning to be persecuted and kicked out of the Jewish synagogues. I know that's hard because for the church at Philadelphia and for us, a lot of times we look around and we see these circumstances we've been given, and not a lot of it looks like an opportunity. The church there must have been looking at everything that was happening their loss of influence, the breaking apart of their relationship with the Jewish community. And all of that stuff, the circumstances seem more like obstacles than it did opportunities. Here you are saying, okay, Jesus. Jesus, you're working in these circumstances as an opportunity. I'm going to pay closer attention to it, but to be honest, when I look around my life, I don't see it right now. Usually the way that we think about success is something like this. Um, if God is blessing me, if things are being successful, then everything is going to get better. It's going to smooth out, and everything before me will just look blessed and easygoing, and the doors will just open. And then we say to ourselves, but if everything's difficult and obstacles, doors seem to be closing, then obviously God must not be in on it. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Jesus' opportunities are usually more complicated than the way that we think about open door, closed door. Um, You remember when I quoted Paul using the open door analogy before. I want to read it again. Listen to how Paul pulls these two ideas together. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide door for effective work is, and many adversaries. Um, Now, I know myself well enough to know that if I'm doing some sort of work and all of a sudden adversaries, people come out against me from everywhere, I'm probably saying to God, God, this doesn't look like the opportunity I thought. It doesn't look like an open door. There seems to be a lot of doors shutting. Does not look like what I had expected? Um, That really struck me this week because I'm the planning type. I tend to take on projects that I have really really thought through every detail of which might be another way of maybe better saying it is i don't tend to do things that i'm not fairly confident i'm going to be successful at it's one of the ways you know you can always be successful you just only do the things you're good at um i started tiling my shower this weekend in our master bath many of you know i've been working on that master bath for the better part of a year Uh, It looks like I've stalled, but I'll point out I haven't been stalled in doing my work. I've just been watching a lot of YouTube videos about tiling. I've, I've literally laid every piece of tile in that shower in my brain before I've ever actually started laying a tile. So imagine this weekend if I start laying tile in the shower finally, and all of a sudden as I get halfway up, all of that tile starts sliding down the wall and falling off. I realize all my measurements are off. You know what I would do. I would panic. It would be a disaster. I'd look at what I've just created and say there was everything. had fallen apart and fail. Um, thankfully, that did not happen yesterday. Everything went smoothly because I planned. But it's how we tend to think about situations. If God is in this, then it'll go smoothly. I'm going to figure everything out. I'm going to plan every detail. I'm going to get everything just the way that I think it needs to be for success. And if things start to fall apart, if it turns into a mess, then God must not be in it and we want to bail. We're out. It's not worth us doing. We do the things that go smoothly. When doors seem to open, favor. But whenever they seem to shut, whenever things seem difficult, we bail. But here's Paul saying that this work in front of him is this massive opportunity for effective ministry. But at the same time, it's complicated with all of these adversaries, all of these people against him, constantly coming out and speaking against him and calling for persecution on him. Jesus doesn't sidestep that issue with the church of Philadelphia either. They have this great opportunity, but he isn't naive about the persecution, the pressure that they're facing from the Jewish synagogue or from the Roman officials constantly trying to wipe out this Christian faith. If you put yourself in their shoes, there isn't a lot that that church in Philadelphia probably would have stepped back from and saw as an opportunity. They were in a crumbling, abandoned town that nobody wanted to be in. The closest thing to allies they had were these former Jewish brothers and sisters who are now turning them over to Roman authorities for persecution and kicking them out of the synagogues. They had this reputation for being an uptight and paranoid, strange Christian cult. And Jesus takes all of these circumstances, this context, and says to them that in it is a massive door of opportunity. Now, most of them at this point probably are taking a step back and saying, You know, I don't quite see the opportunity in this set of circumstances. Um, If you've ever been to maybe a modern art museum, uh, the one in St. Louis, or I've been to the one in Chicago, you'll always know when you get to the modern art portion because the building changes and the paintings start changing. And you always get these paintings with really dramatic titles like A Perspective on Hope. And then you look at the painting and it looks like, well, my three-year-old did a finger painting and they've hung it on the wall and it's now worth millions of dollars. And there's always inevitably somebody standing beside you in way cooler clothes than you and they're saying, ah, now this this painting speaks to me. And at this point you're trying to say to yourself, either this person's crazy or I'm crazy because we're not seeing the same thing when we look at this painting. Uh, That has to be a little bit of how some of these People in Philadelphia are feeling. They're stepping back, looking at this set of circumstances in front of them. They're hearing Jesus say, ah, now this is a door of opportunity. And they're saying to themselves, you know, I'm just not quite seeing the opportunity here. You have to recognize that Jesus never clears that ambiguity up for that church. He doesn't go on in his letter to say, so let me walk you through it step by step and point out all of the opportunity. Or he doesn't say, get ready for the big reveal. Move the bus and people start cheering and going nuts because there it is, the opportunity. Jesus just says, keep patiently trusting me. What What is ahead of you is an opportunity, I promise. No one can close that door. I've already opened it. No one, nothing can exclude you from going through it if you'll just patiently believe. I think that's an important word for us as a church, but I also think it's a really important one for you as an individual. It's hard to admit, but we aren't very good at recognizing opportunities or recognizing what God is doing in these sets of circumstances we find ourselves in. Right now, you maybe look around and look around at your life. You may look around at even the context of this church, these personal situations we each find ourselves in, and you may be saying to yourself, "You know." None of this quite looks like an opportunity. I'm not really seeing what's an open door. I don't see how any of this going on in my life glorifies God. I don't see how any of this could be working itself out for good. I don't see how any of it could be going anywhere at all. I want you to hear what Jesus says to this church this morning because I think it's so important for you. The opportunity he lays in front of us seldom is obvious, it seldom presents itself as an opportunity. And thankfully, we don't have to understand it. It isn't our calling to figure out and achieve all of the plans, all of the opportunities before us. Those opportunities don't require anything from you. All you have to do is simply believe. Christ is opening. Christ is shutting. Faithfully, patiently, trusting and giving yourself an endurance to it. How you handle opportunities, especially those opportunities that don't seem to be going well, the difficult circumstances says so much about the source of your faith. This is faith that God is the one working and doing, that all of the achievements of your life aren't dependent on just you and your strategies. If you're a believer, you know that's how the kingdom of God works. We just tend to lose sight of it and all of this day-to-day living out of the world that doesn't seem to function the same way. Remember the message that you first received, the message the Philadelphians are being told, urged, to hold on to. The greatest opportunity... The most important moment of Christ's life was the very moment when everyone else, all of his closest followers, his friends, stepped back from him and said, all of a sudden I don't get it. They all said, none of this looks good, definitely not what I expected from a Messiah. They saw Jesus get arrested, they saw him get beaten, they saw him go to the cross, and they said to themselves, none of this looks right, none of this looks like an opportunity, and they bailed. They ran it simply could not make sense out of the circumstances that Jesus was so willingly and voluntarily walking himself into. But while they were abandoning Jesus in despair, unable to grasp what was happening, Jesus was patiently believing with endurance. He was believing that before him was a door, an opportunity. But as Jesus hung there on the cross, the irony of that moment, just as he was believing, just as he expected that door to be opening, the door was shut Jesus, all of a sudden, this relationship with God from the very beginning, all eternity, finds himself now locked out of the heavenly palace. The door literally slammed on him. He died, separated. He died under our judgment, blocked from God. His words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three days later, when Jesus was raised, when he was vindicated, what happened in that moment was that door was reopened, and Jesus was given the keys, handed down the keys to begin unlocking that door, to opening up that access to God for all of us. That by believing in what Jesus had accomplished, Jesus now gave the power to have access to God. But that death and resurrection that Jesus played out put him in the position of the new gatekeeper, the possibility, of knowing God personally and standing before him in Christ's righteousness. When Jesus turns to you now and says, I've put before you an open door, those who believed that gospel message about the ultimate door to God being open, we take on a new perspective, a new ability to look at the circumstances around us and recognize God doing something good, even in difficult situations. That's exactly the message of the gospel, that when death and judgment pinned Jesus Christ to the cross in that very set of circumstances, God was working good. How much more, if God could work good in that moment, can God be taking all of the difficulties of your circumstances and your situation and using them to open all sorts of doors, opportunities in your life? And so Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, I love you. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. How encouraging are those words? Just keep believing. He loves you. He went to the cross for you. This may not look like an opportunity. These circumstances may be incredibly difficult, but Jesus Christ is working in them. Of all the churches we know in this region of Asia Minor, we know that the church at Philadelphia had the greatest longevity of any of the churches. For 1,200 years, we know that a congregation existed in Philadelphia, and it was the last city, Philadelphia, of the whole region to fall to the Turks during the Ottoman invasion. Even then, there are accounts of secret churches in the area all the way up into the 1940s. And according to some church tradition, missionaries were sent from Philadelphia to as far away places as India. It really struck me this week that this church really was a church that just kept at it. Just kept holding on, just kept worshiping, just kept acknowledging Jesus. Even when the circumstances were difficult, they just kept at it. They hoped with patient endurance, they received with a kind of gratitude that trusted in all circumstances God was working. That's really this morning as we're going to close in prayer. My hope for this church, for hope for you as individuals, it's a small hope in some ways, just hold on, but I believe in that it's a massive hope. It's the hope that unlocks and opens our perspective to everything that Christ is doing in all of these hard times and all of these difficult situations. So let's close in prayer and then um, we're going to worship just as a way of saying to Christ, We are trusting. We are believing. Let's bow our heads and pray.